Welcome to the True Stories of World War II podcast, where the stories are true and about World War II. I'm your host, Holden, better known on the internet as True Stories of World War II. Our guest today is Mason, better known on the internet as the Milser Mariner. Mason, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, as uh, Holden said, my name is Mason. Um, I run a relatively small um, history, firearms, military history page on Instagram. Um, mostly focuses around um, British Commonwealth small arms, but I have a smattering of other pieces in my collection that will show up from time to time. Um, I just post run-of-the-mill um, gun pics, uh, the occasional video, and some... Um, other random stuff on my story that loosely pertains to um, my area of interest. Awesome. All right. So, um, Milser Mariner is one of my close friends on Instagram, but uh, why I chose to have him on one of his first podcasts is he's actually one of the first Milser history pages that I ran across before I even started True Stories of World War II. So, in a way, I guess he's one of the inspirations for my page. Um, so that's pretty cool. Finally get somebody that uh, was one of the inspirations for me to jump into the history world on the podcast, which is pretty pretty interesting. Um, before we get rolling here, uh, I got some shout outs to give. Uh, first of all, I want to shout out the people that sponsored today's podcast. Uh, first, I have Surplus and Stuff. He's a great dude. Uh, we're going to get him on a podcast next week i think and then also black sheep 302 uh he actually sponsored the next three podcasts which is really nice to him uh that we're gonna get him on saturday we're gonna do some show and tell kind of stuff and maybe talk about uh some world war ii movies so be looking out for that uh if you want a shout out one of these videos uh it's just gonna cost you a dollar you know that's all we're looking for and if you want to give us five bucks I'll send you a True Stories of World War II sticker to wherever you are in the world. It's a pretty good deal, honestly, because it cost me like $2 to ship them. So uh, if you want to sponsor us, send me a message on Instagram. All right. You guys have seen the show. You know what's coming next. We're getting right into the controversial questions. Milster Mariner, are you ready for the controversy? Send it. He said, send it. We're going to jump right into it with probably one of the most controversial questions we have tackled so far. All our listeners at home, I hope you're sitting down. All right. So, Mason, do you believe the myth of the clean Wehrmacht, also known as the regular German army, didn't commit any atrocities? You can blame it all on the SS. What are your thoughts? Um. What I'm about to say shouldn't be taken out of context. Um, I, I don't believe in that myth, mostly because no army during any war is clean, be it the side that history decides to pick as the good guys or not. You know, the U.S. Army, they didn't really do some great things in the Pacific. Um, you know, Canadians, and this is a different war, Canadians were not known for doing great things to German prisoners during World War I. Um, seems that everyone in war is human. Um, everybody makes mistakes. There's some good people, there's some bad people. And while the SS was kind of at the epicenter of the knowledge of um, German war atrocities, I feel like there's no true, no true um, 
you know, uh, what's the word? Um, Innocent parties. There's, there's no one who's, there's no one who's perfect in war. Um, right. Everybody, everybody does something regrettable at some point. Um, yeah. Be it the Axis, be it allies. You know, what I think is really interesting about this myth, uh, it's, it's called the clean Wehrmacht, basically. Like the, the whole idea that the German army is, is completely free of blame for anything that happened during World War II. Um, it's, it's been like disproven. Like it, it's one of those things that like there's proof that the, the Wehrmacht was just as guilty as the SS for committing war crimes. And there's like, there's literally pictures of the Wehrmacht with the SS committing war crimes. But even though it's been proven to not be like valid, there's still people that believe it. And it's, it's still something that's like widely spread. And I, I think it's kind of a way of like, for people in the present day to like remove themselves from World War II a little bit. Right. Like, oh, my ancestor, he fought for Germany, but he wasn't SS. He was just a regular army. So, I mean, there's a chance like, or I mean, it's probably not even a chance. It's probably like a really good odds that your ancestor didn't like participate in some particularly terrible things, but like there's still a chance they did. So like just to like totally discount that just for being Wehrmacht is a little uh, short-sighted, I guess. Maybe it's wishful thinking. What do you think about that? Yeah, I do agree with the wishful thinking. And I've actually heard this myth from, um, yeah, I was on some Facebook Milsurf forum and I've heard it from a couple German reenactors in that forum where, and I don't agree with either side. I don't agree with the people who like think that German reenactors are neo-Nazis. And I don't agree with the people who think that like it was just the SS who, um, who did all the bad stuff. And I just think it's so strange to hear. It's like, no, yeah, the, the German army was, was totally, you know, they were totally blamed for you. It was just this one little portion yeah, I think that the reenacting thing is like a whole nother subject <laughs> in my book. Um, like, honestly, there's in every like w group of World War II like nerds, there's one dude who's a little too into Germany. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? You know, those guys like you're just you're just like, ha, ha, man, like you're like one like goose step away from being a neo-Nazi. Yeah. And like, I don't even think you're trying. Like, yeah, but I, I've known multiple people that fit that description. And it's just like all right, guy, like, you got to chill out a little bit on the Nazi Germany stuff, <laughs> like, yep. um, yeah, I agree with what you said, but, um, with people distancing themselves from that, um, and, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to call it mature, I'm just going to call it correct historical thinking, um, I'm, like, let's see, let me do some genealogy, I'm about 50% Polish Jew, and, you know, historically speaking, that's not really, um, they're not really a well-treated group, especially by the Germans in World War II. And there are just some absolute idiots out there who just think it's like, nope, it was just the SS, not the regular German army. It's like, you know what, as a person who can historically trace their roots back to people who are directly oppressed by them, I can like think about it and say, it's like, you know, everybody did bad things at one point it's not just one group. You can't lay the blame all on one, one group of people. Um, yeah. And I, I'm kind of on the opposite side of that, to be honest with you. I, uh, I have Wehrmacht um, 
infantry ancestors who died in Russia during World War II. So I, I don't have any qualms about what they did. I, I just, like, it is what it is. I mean, and I, I've had this conversation with other people before. It's like, it's great to, like, study ancestry, but, like, you can't really, like, take responsibility for what happened before you're born. You kind of just have to, like, oh, learn. Exactly. You have to learn from it. But, like, I don't, I don't even want to know, like, the percentage of Americans that are alive today that have, like, Nazi relatives. Like, it's probably a lot. Like, we don't yeah. want to know. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, and it, there's also the fact that so many people apply modern morals to history, and you, that's something that can't be done. Um, you can't no. think of history in a modern standpoint just because what happened happened. There are things that happened in the heat of the moment that maybe now we wouldn't have done, but you, you can't. You mean you can't change the fact and you can't blame people for things that happened nearly 100 years ago or 70 years ago. Yeah, I think that's really valid. And like, not only is it like we can't apply like modern standards, it's like we, we just can't even play like the what if game with history, you know, like what if this would have happened and what if that would, well, it didn't. So, yeah, exactly. yeah. But it's fun to talk about. I mean, that's why I have a yeah. career in it. But right. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, just tying all this, like this whole controversy up is it's it's really complicated that there's still people out there that believe this myth that the Wehrmacht did nothing wrong because it's been proven that they did. And yeah, it's, exactly. There's, there's photographic evidence. Um, so, yeah, it's just a weird hill to die on because it's proven to be true, you know? Yeah. Um, or that the fact that it's not true has been proven to be true, I should yep. say. So... I want to switch from Europe over to my area of focus in Asia and talk about the atomic bombs in Japan. Wow. Uh, I really want to look at this, this issue that I've seen a lot lately where people are starting to ask the question, why are we so fixated on the atomic bombs in uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima when the firebombing of Tokyo actually took more lives than one single attack? Give me thoughts on that. I think that we're so we we think about the uh, the atomic bombings more than Tokyo because I mean the fire bombings unfortunately were nothing new. It was happening in Europe um, at the same time, and unfortunately not a lot of people consider that. But the atomic bombs were something new, and it was something that happened in an instant and instantly changed warfare forever. And while both of them ca caused a catastrophic death toll. The nuclear bombs were just something that was so much newer and such an instantaneous change to everything that had happened before that people kind of forget about the other stuff. Yeah, I think that's really, a really good point is like the atomic bombs were so like, they were, they were, they were brand new, you know, like there's, there wasn't anything to like compare them to previously, even though like we estimate a, 100,000 people died in the firebombing at Tokyo and only 70,000 people died in Nagasaki and 80,000 died in Hiroshima. It's still like the, these bombs, it was just like this new, it was a single bomb, you know, it wasn't like this strafing run of um, incinerary bombs. It was one bomb. It wasn't like this mass scale bombing that we'd seen in Tokyo and like uh, Dresden, like we talked about in the last podcast. And I, I think that's really valid. I mean, it's just this whole like, whole like brand new thing and even though it didn't have like the highest body count um 
which sounds really morbid saying it like that, but that's really what it was. I mean, it, they didn't have the highest body count um, of any like attack in the war. And I think sometimes that gets lost in the mud too. Like some people get the idea that these atomic bombs were like the worst thing ever. Um, they were pretty bad, but probably yeah. not like the worst thing ever because they didn't quite have the body count that other um, single day attacks had. Um, we, we fixed that in the 50s. We made atomic bombs that were like a thousand times as bad as the ones that we dropped in Japan, but that's another story. Um, and I think that's why we're so fixated on them, though, is because it was just such a, like, a brand new, like, foray into a new kind of way to kill each other. Yeah. Um, another reason I think that we think about the atomic bombings more is that unlike the development of warships and planes and tanks and other forms of mechanized warfare that took a long time to develop and saw a lot of time on the battlefield with the nuclear bomb it's like at first there was nothing and then there's the nuclear bomb it was just such a new thing that people are all of a sudden it's like yeah this is game changing all the other stuff is kind of old run of the mill you know fire bombings happened during the war but the nuclear bombings it's just such a different thing that it just kind of defines the late war period, especially in the Pacific. That's fair. And I, I always want to add my disclaimer when we're talking about civilian casualties in war. I don't condone civilian casualties and the, the atomic bombs are like particularly like touchy subjects to a lot of people. Um, but I, I think it's, we're still talking about it today because there's, there's still this question of like whether or not it was justified to drop them why are we so fixated on them when worse stuff happened? And I guess that really, that's kind of like leading into my next question. Um, why do we view the atomic bombs as what added, like really ended the war in Japan when it really, they really weren't, you know, uh, what really ended the war in Japan is the Russians showed up. And previously Japan had hoped that the Russians were gonna hold the US at bay. Um, that didn't really happen. Obviously, the Russians they 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 showed up in the Pacific. Coincidentally, the same time frame that the Japan Japan surrendered. But in the U.S., we'd like to think that Japan surrendered because we dropped a couple atomic bombs. Do right. you, Do you think that's just kind of like this U.S. like supremacy idea that we have? Like we'd really like to think that it was us that finished the war, or is there more to the story? I think I think a lot of it is. Yeah, just ramp, rampant American nationalism, which, I mean, I'm as, I'm as red-blooded American as it gets, but like all like the back-to-back -back World War champion shirts and bumper stickers just for some reason annoyed the piss out of me. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm not entirely sure why, but um, I think we think about the nuclear bombs ending the war. Like I said in the last point, it's just something that's, you can draw it to one exact point. With the Russians arriving in the Pacific, it was kind of like, I don't want to say a trickle in, but it wasn't as instant as the nuclear bombs. And with the proximity that they happened to each other, one of them can kind of get brushed under the carpet in lieu of the other one being a much more catalyzing event. Fair. And I, I just want to make the point too that about as red-blooded American as they come to. I mean, I was a sergeant in the Marine Corps. I kind of take crap for 
kick in the U.S. every once in a while, but it's kind of just, I, I like honest history, you know, and I don't think that this over patriotized history is honest history sometimes. It's just like exactly. our, our patriotism in the United States is almost like a, like a civil religion to the yeah. point like we, we worship like American world dominance when I, I don't always think it should be praised quite as much. You know, the whole idea of playing uh, like world police, which is like the American diplomatic strategy today is a, it's a little overplayed and a little like overhyped to be honest. Um, yeah. I really, I, I tend to think that like, the reason though that we're we're taught in school that like the atomic bombs ended the war it really has a lot to do with like the whole cold war thing like we immediately just get into this like uh, 40 year 50 year stalemate with russia following world war ii so we don't really want to admit that the russians basically won the war in europe so why would we want to admit that they basically won the war in asia <laughs> exactly yeah that's a good way to think about it too um that's a really good way to think about it. Um. Yeah, and I mean, I don't always agree with all the Russian hate either, but that's another yeah. story. Um, I don't, I don't have a ton like more to say about the atomic bombings in Japan and like American supremacy, but I always like to funnel back to the point where whenever I'm talking about the atomic bombs, is like. Um, if we didn't drop the bombs, there's a chance that a lot more people would have died in a land exactly. invasion in a land invasion of Japan. So, like, however, like controversial the bombing is in Japan, a land invasion most likely would have cost a lot more civilian lives. Um, yeah, and, and that's that'll, really go, that'll go back to the um, the war atrocities that were discussed earlier. Like, I mean, Japan was arming every man, woman, and child with whatever they could. Right. If, I mean, if a some super excited U.S. serviceman was seeing a bunch of Japanese coming at them with swords and sticks, and he had, like, I don't know, was sitting behind a 1919 machine gun or something. I mean, if he had a bunch of guys like that, that could have ended up with a lot more controversy than the two atomic bombs. Right. I've talked about this before on other podcasts and probably some Instagram lives where when we actually got to mainland Japan, like we found warehouses that were like full of like sharpened sticks, basically. It's like, so we kind of had like an idea that like the Japanese citizens weren't going to like give up mainland Japan without like hand to hand, like fight to the death, basically. And yep. actually like some of those sticks are like some of like the, not like the most expensive, like Japanese war relics because they no, like, exactly. cause they like burned these warehouses when they got there. So if, if anybody has like ones that have like providence, like they can prove that are actually like from there, uh, they're actually like super expensive relics. But. Yeah, exactly. It's like the late war, like last stitch type 99 rifles. Like, I mean, they're fine rifles. Um, they're not really shooters, but they just go for an insane amount of money just because that last ditch um, provenance they have behind them. Yeah, I have a, a last ditch one, but it's not, not as crude as some of them. Um, I've seen has, some ridiculously crude ones. Yeah, it um, has it has the the wooden butt plate, the tacked together um, bolt, uh, unfinished metal, unfinished wood, but it's it's not as bad as some of them I'm seeing. Like like there's ones that were made like the day before the empire collapsed. So yeah, yeah. 
and sometimes you got to think about these things like, and this is kind of wandering off topic, like the Arasaka family rifles are extremely well made. And if these things are being designed to be combat rifles and you can still make the same combat rifle in that rushed of a manner, your people, the people that are going to be using it are probably just going to fight just as good as that rifle is. Um, and that's pretty insane to me. Yeah. Uh, don't get me started on Arasakas. I love them. Um, yeah. I love the impracticability of anti-aircraft sites on the early ones. Like, I just, I love, I love the concept there. Yeah, and you know what I don't see much of, though, is the late war K-98s. Like, I don't, you don't see a lot of people talking about those, but they're, like, almost as equally as crude as the late war Arasakas. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah I've I saw one come up on Gunbroker that was listed as a sporterized Mauser. It's like, no, it's not sporterized. It just wasn't built all the way. Yeah. Um, I actually, I've never handled one ever. I've handled a lot of guns and I've never handled a, a late war K98. I guess that's on the bucket list. Um, yep. I haven't either. So um, I want to move on to our next controversial topic. I think we kind of like, We've already kind of touched on it in this answer, and it's the whole idea of do you agree with the statement that the U.S. saved the day in World War II? And I think this really gets into that whole idea of, like, U.S. supremacy. Um, I partially agree with it. Um, it's not like the U.S. fought every single battle and won every single battle either. But you do have to recognize that the U.S. had an, a very appreciable effect on the war, mostly because... Um, we were a huge manufacturing giant in the war. Like even before we entered the war, we were supplying Britain with not most of their arms and ammunition, but a good amount of it. Plus our merchant fleet was um, really pulling their weight um, in the Battle of the Atlantic, um, really keeping Britain afloat with um, supplies, both for civilians and military. But I don't agree with the fact it's pretty popular in the media and in most um, relatively uneducated, and in at least a history sense, uneducated people's minds that the war started in 1941 and the U.S. ended in 1945. That's the part I don't agree with. Right. And I think that's fair because by the time the United States had officially entered the war, it had been going on for two years. That war started in 1939. Um, depending on who you ask, it might have started in 1937 in Asia. Um, yep. But I also, like, what you were talking about with the Lend-Lease program, I tend to think, like, um, the U.S., like, production it wasn't just covering for the U.S. in World War II. We were supplying the British and the Free French and the Chinese and anybody else who needed supplies, Russia, um, which is – that always kind of blows my mind. The U.S. was supplying Russia with supplies during World War II, but that we were. Um, yep. Actually, a lot of Jeeps. Um, yep. But It's always interesting to see, um, you know, Sherman tanks – um, in the hands of both Russians and British. Um, I mean, like, it's it's just so weird. Like, you see pictures of them on the internet, and they're like, oh, those Americans are wearing the wrong helmets. And it's like, well, the fact is, is that they're not Americans. They're just using American equipment. Um, yeah, yeah. I posted a picture a while back on 
Instagram. I can't remember which plane it was, but they were, there was a line of planes, like five or six of them. And they were all us manufactured, but they were marked up for like six different countries. Yep. Which I don't know. So like, I like, I'm kind of with you. Like I I'm like back and forth, like on this idea that the U S saved the day. Like I think the U S manufacturing had a lot to do with success in world war two. Um, considering we were making things like Enfields and Mosins, <laughs> yep. um, things that like you'd be pretty hard to debate didn't really have a huge contribution. Um, but like at the same time, it's like by the time the U S had got to Europe, I mean, the war had been going on for two years, you know? Um, so it's, it's kind of hard to say like, you know, the U S we just, we came in there and we cleaned up Well, it took four more years after we like decided to enter the war. Right. Like it wasn't like an overnight success. Like I just, I like this, the world war one song uh, over there. I don't know if you're oh, familiar, yeah. familiar with it, but it's yes, like this over enthusiastic, like American, like uh, uh, the Yanks are coming and we're not coming home till it's over, over there. Like, yep it's a little more complicated than that. You know, like we're still yeah. there. We're still yeah. there. Like it's, yeah. it's been over since 1945 and we're still there. Like, exactly. I mean, there's still, um, and this is a cold war thing too, but there's still, um, you know, army and air force bases in Italy and Germany and France, um, that have been there since the forties. Yeah. Well, I spent two years on a, on Okinawa so in, in Japan. So yeah, I'm well aware we're still occupying places since the 1940s. Yeah. Uh, that, was one of, that was my first station in the Marine Corps, two years in Okinawa, which is about a thousand miles south of mainland Japan in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I go to school with a guy who is, um, he was a bosun's mate on a minesweeper. Um, I think also out of Okinawa. Um, pretty sure it was Okinawa. Yeah, somewhere, some some Japanese island, but I'm pretty sure it was Okinawa. But yeah. Yeah, we still have huge troop buildups there and in Germany. And I th- actually, I think recently Trump said we're going to bring people home from Germany. Uh, I'll believe it when I see it. I mean, that those bases, they yeah. went through like peaks and valleys. Like there was a ton of service members there in like the 80s and 90s. And it, it's kind of like, waned back now now that we're not fighting like full-on wars in the middle east but i you could argue that we've been occupying europe since since world war ii i mean like like yeah it's it's still like ongoing you know but yeah i mean i'd argue that any military presence is is technically an occupation yeah yeah i would too Uh, we have even more complicated military presence like our presence in cuba like I explained yeah. that one to me. I have no idea how we've maintained a, a military base in Cuba through like 50 years of a Castro regime. <laughs> yeah. But all right, we kind of got away from uh, is the U did the US say of the day? I think the real answer here is well sort of <laughs> and when we say well sort of, we're really talking about manufactured goods, not necessarily brute force. If you're looking for brute force see russia in the dictionary yeah (laughs) the 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 method of we'll just throw people at the problem until the problem goes away uh never mind the body count you don't need a rifle you'll be just fine 
aka yeah. uh, Joseph Stalin. All right. Yeah, I mean, I, I I will never support communism or the Soviet Union, but like, if you need someone to fight a war against another super nasty regime, the Soviet Union is the one who's going to win it. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons, and I mean, there's just like this. Soviets are so used to their life being awful that like they have the upper yeah. hand and that, and they have this exactly. like insane population. Like I, I, like you can't even like compare it to like the countries they were fighting against. <laughs> so, um, oh, exactly. Yeah. They could just like, unlike Germany who was breaking out the Volkssturm later in the war, the Soviet Union just kept pumping and pumping out new troops to the Eastern front. Yeah, honestly, I think some of like the worst images from like the war in Europe are, are when the Soviets finally take Berlin and they're fighting like kids, basically. Oh, it's awful. Yeah, especially what they did to like some of that, um, some of that really, really old, almost medieval era architecture. Um, those pictures actually make me really sad. Like the, I can't remember the Reichstag. I think um, what they did to the inside of it, it's like that's some beautiful, beautiful pre, like pre. Um, it's definitely pre Weimar Germany architecture. Yeah, actually, I think I just posted about the Reichstag before I got uh, banned. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, it's that super, super famous picture. Like you can see the, um, you can see these beautiful, beautiful, um, beautiful columns and statues and stuff and it's just covered with uh, vandalism yeah the the thing about the the reichstag though is it the nazis burned it and then the soviets yeah. came and tagged over the burned building yeah <laughs> i guess yeah. that's what happens when you have two terrible regimes clashing with each other it's just worse on worse yeah actually that picture reminded me um one of my other like areas of research has been like vikings like viking age yep. Uh, and then, like, the, the graffiti that Vikings did when they were in, like, Istanbul or Constantinople, like, on, like, thousand-year-old buildings. Like, they, like, yep. the, they, the equivalent of, like, uh, Hans was here or something on, yep. on like, these, like, thousand-year-old churches. You're, like, great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, I got one more controversial question. And I... I I think that All right. so this one is more or less controversial. It's one of those things I think that there's not ever really going to be a real answer. And it's this idea of whether or not World War II should be considered one war or multiple wars and breaking, broken down to like the different fronts. Like you could like the, basically uh, the European war would be like a, a European civil war, right? And that the... Right. The war in Asia would be something similar, like an Asian civil war. And uh, like the war in Northern Africa would be something similar. And then the war that would happen in like India, and that'd be like an, a completely other thing. So like, it's like breaking this idea that we'd break down like all the different like theaters basically into like separate wars. And that while they were all like occurring at the same time, like, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily work to group them all into this um this big broad umbrella of world war ii because like all these different conflicts were 
were kind of happening for different reasons. Like the Japanese were killing Chinese for different reasons than the Germans were invading Poland. So does it really make sense to group them together, even though they were allies? Um, what right. do you think? What are your yeah. thoughts? I mean, personally, I think of them, I'm, I mean, yeah, it's all World War II, but I think of it as different conflicts because there are times where they actually seem like different conflicts. Like the war in North Africa was very different from the stalemate on the Eastern Front. And I feel like they almost should be considered separate conflicts just because there's so much going on that there are some things that just go unnoticed like Japan invading China. Um, right. I'm going to rope the Cold War into this because the Cold War often gets recognized as a war that didn't happen. Um, whereas there was so much going on in the war, like there was a ton of conflicts um, in Africa, in Asia, all over the place. Um, and World War II gets, it kind of just gets, um, gets its fame from Asia and the Pacific, or not Asia and the Pacific, sorry, Asia and Europe. And, you know, the Italian front um, and North Africa, they, I mean, some super serious World War II enthusiasts, you know, like to talk about them and stuff, but your average your average history enthusiast will kind of just think of World War II as, you know, Pearl Harbor, D-Day, invasion of France, that kind of stuff. Right, and I think that's fair. And part of the reason, like, uh, we, we think about World War II as, like, this one event is because, like, it's, like, usually, like, a week in high school history is most people's exposure to World War II, right? So, like, yep. you can only teach so much in a week or two and then like never revisit it again so that's kind of like why why people have this very like surface level level understanding of world war ii it's like like you were saying it's like pearl harbor and then d-day and then we drop bombs and then it was over like that's people's understanding of world war ii exactly. like, i have to like part of my what i do is like actively work against that like there's a lot more to it <laughs> like there, there's allies yeah. and enemies, and it was and U.S. involvement was four years military, but like two or three years before that, supplying stuff. Like it, it's a, it's a much longer event than a one week in your history class, and it it, it still has effects today on global politics, on uh, like who's in charge of what countries, and. Like you could, you could say that socialism in Europe is directly like tied to like being so anti-regime. Like yep. there, there's very, like the effects of World War II like can't be understated, but I think it's really dangerous to like really just like group it all into this like one big umbrella because the things that happened were so like spread out geography or geographically, but also like uh, on a time scale. Because, I mean, like like we were saying, like, the first actions of World War II really could be, like, attributed to, like, the mid-30s, like, J Japanese invasions of China. Um, oh, yeah. But I don't – I really like to think about the war in the Pacific and the war in Europe being almost completely different. I kind of I, – I don't know if it's right or wrong, but I usually kind of group North Africa 
into the war in Europe. And I usually group everything going on in the Pacific to the war with Japan, even though like, I mean, like geographically, like in the Pacific, like the war was taking place like a 3000 mile battlefield, basically. Like, Oh yeah. I mean, the distance from Japan to Australia is like the distance from Japan to like the United States. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's kind of hard to like, think about like that because we're so used to looking at a globe and it looks a lot closer than that, but it's really not. Right. There's just so much going on at one point in time that people just, you know, it's world right. war two. Right. Um, and I mean, go ahead. Well, and I was going to touch on your North Africa thing again. I also consider it war in Europe because there were the Germans, the Brits and the Italians and the Americans too. The Americans were there. Um, and it also in heavily influenced the invasion of Italy later on in the war. Um, so I consider North Africa um, almost a side quest, if you will, to the, uh, to the European theater. Honestly, like as a historian, I don't consider the war in uh, North Africa to be done in 1945. I really don't see the war in North Africa being over until France loses its colonies and I, I want to say that it wasn't until the seventies. So the yeah. war in Africa is, is ongoing. Like it went on for a long, actually I think it was right before 1968. I think that was one of the reasons the big like French, like civil uprisings in the sixties. Um, yeah. So, like, There's also something with France that was happening in Vietnam, but that's kind of a minor issue. And it's just might be a tiny minor footnote in history, sarcastically speaking, of course. <laughs> yeah. I took a class on, 1968 France so <laughs> uh, I'm a little I'm a little schooled up on that stuff um, but yeah it's, it's neither here here nor there <laughs> but yeah yeah I, I think it's really messy to like World War II was 1939 to 1945 because it was really like it started before that and like you could like argue that uh, the Cold War is really just an extension of that so what did that that didn't really end to like 89 like <laughs> I mean, you could even think of it as World War II just being a, a continuation of a ceasefire after World War I. Right. The Cold War being the afterburn of, world, of, you know, the World War, if we're going to think about it in one big scope. Yeah, and I, I always like to think, like, what would a, a World War, like, one veteran think, like, uh, if he heard somebody refer to World War II, <laughs> like like between wars or they didn't even call world war one world war one until after world war two so like what if they heard somebody refer, like say like world war one like in 1920 yeah. they, they would have been like uh, yeah. what <laughs> wait there's another one I'm gonna have like, to do this again yeah no your kids are <laughs> yep all right i think we ate up our time on controversial topics I, I really liked your answers. I, you got really involved. I appreciate that. I didn't have to do all the talking, which is really nice. <laughs> all right. So I was glad to be in assistance. <laughs> so uh, you know what comes next in the show. We, we're going to talk about you, your account, what you're doing, why I chose you to be a guest on my super famous podcast. <laughs> um, so Milster Mariner, 100% of the people I surveyed, which was me, want to know, why do you keep changing the name of your account? Okay. Um, we're going to have to go all the way back to the beginning of my account, which was um, a little bit over a year ago. 
So originally I called myself, the name of the account was Surplus Boogaloo, and that did not have any tie-in with the Boog meme that came out a couple months later. Um, and it was a collaborative effort between myself and a friend, and he is really interested about First World War vehicles, planes and tanks, that kind of stuff. And it's like, hey, I have a bunch of this gear, and I really want an outlet to talk about it do you want to kind of have an outlet to talk about all the stuff that you know so we can talk about it more than just on our little group chat that we have going? So we started that. A couple months later, um, we both split ways. We both went off to college. And I took over the account um, as its sole proprietor. And I changed the name to Surplus Luau, which was in correlation with the Boog meme before it wasn't about liberty and it was about violence. Um, and I kept that name because it was kind of catchy. It was short and sweet. Um, and I could abbreviate it to SL, which a lot of people didn't have. Um, and then some stuff happened, um, which I think is a question you're going to ask later regarding Luau Inc. And I changed my name again to avoid being lumped in with that former group to Millsert Mariner, which I have been planning for a while. And I really don't like to change my name that much just because if people see all of a sudden see Surplus Luau disappear and Millsert Mariner come up, they're going to be like, who is this guy? And maybe they'll unfollow. I don't really care if people unfollow, but I like at least a little bit of retention. So that's a little bit of the history behind the name. And the name fits me a little bit better too. It kind of describes who I am. That's, that's interesting. Because um, I've been uh, following you on my main account since you were surplus boogaloo. So a long time. Um, yep. but I don't know, this is some like deep true stories of world war two lore here. When I, st I started this account with two other people. Um, I don't think anybody knows that I've never mentioned it anywhere before, but yep. I quickly found out that uh, one person wasn't producing the, like the quality of content that I wanted. And like I cut him out right away. And another person, yeah. like he kind of just stopped producing content. So, I mean, I throw a lot of people off when I use like, uh, when I refer to the pages, like we, but originally there was three people. It's, it's just me now. And it right. has been pretty much from the beginning, like from like the first month I want to say, but like, uh, no, we yep. started, I started the same way. This account was supposed to be multiple people. And I've still like thought about that because like uh, posting every day is a lot of work. So I've thought about bringing in other people. Hey, you post on Saturdays, but I don't know. I think it would water down the brand a little bit. So now scheduling like that is hard. Um, and I mean, I have a, a bit larger of a, of a follower group than I did before back when it was surplus boogaloo and it was two people. Um, but if you scroll way down to the bottom of my account back when you used to do a lot more history posts that are actually pretty similar to what you do, Holden, um, you can see that whenever we would respond to comments, we'd sign off as two different names because there are in fact two people. There was admin yeah. and myself and then there was Scott who was an alias of my friend who uh, co-owned the account at the time. Um, so whenever you'd see like a picture of equipment, that was me. And then whenever you'd see a picture of some like, you know, early German prototype tank or 
some Mexican armored vehicle from 1916, which is a thing, and I highly recommend you check it out on my page um, for all those who are listening. Um, you'll see that we sign off as different names um, because there were two people who used to run the account. So I, I guess we kind of already, we already kind of like edged into it. Um, people want to know, man, like what happened with Luau Wink? It seemed like you were, you were kind of like, I don't know, I want to say you were, you were leading the charge, but like when you, it kind of felt like it was named after you a little bit and there was a lot of people involved. Uh, you want to give like a, a quick description of what Luau Inc. was for the people that don't know and then talk about what happened? Yeah, so originally Luau Inc. was a group of 10 people, I think 10 Instagram uh, gun pages. I was the only one that was a kind of Milsert page. At the time, I didn't own anything newer than 1943. Um, and it was a really cool group of people. Um, you know, we would just, you know, talk about guns and gear and all sorts of other stuff in this chat. Just a bunch of really fun, liberty loving people. Like we'd, we'd like do like all these like workout challenges and stuff like this. And it was a lot of fun for the first few months. And then people, the group chat started to get like, people started to take themselves way too seriously. Um, and you know, no one likes that, especially in an Instagram group chat. Um, and some people decided to cut themselves out. Some people were getting like super edgy and it's like some people got banned from that group chat. And me and a couple other people, I was the last of these aforementioned people to leave. But we just ended up leaving because um, there were just a couple people in the group that we just couldn't put up with anymore. That's like, you know, we don't want to waste our time with this anymore. And we're just going to go peacefully from this and shortly following that the luo inc page itself um supposedly got banned and deleted um and i'm pretty sure it didn't because the people the main people who left were the main content creators for that page and after that no posts were done and all of a sudden the page just disappears completely and everyone was saying that it got banned. And then me and a couple other people were like, it 100% didn't get banned. Yeah. Um, Let so me tell you, I'm, sure an expert, I'm an expert on being banned. And usually they don't just up and delete your account. Usually you just end up yeah. like me where you can't post or comment or yeah, like exactly. or follow. So, Yeah, and I've been banned a few times. And I know for a fact that it just doesn't go straight up to randomly being deleted. Yeah. Like I've gotten threats of being deleted, but my account's <laughs> never been just completely just vaporized. Um, oh, I think it, but, I uh, appreciate you giving your your point of view on that. I I don't want to like put you out there in, in bad st standing with the other people, but um, I think people are curious because it seemed to be like for a while there it was really taken off, and like a lot of people were talking yeah, about it. Um, I mean, it was a bigger page than mine was. Um, Pretty sure it ended with around 2,000 followers, which is pretty good for an account that posted like once every other week. Um, yeah, it's not bad. Yeah, that's, that's the short version of a very juicy story. Um, well, I, I know as well as anybody that working with other creators isn't always easy. Um, I've had multiple partnerships on this account that they they aren't currently going on so that, that should give you a key um i i try to work with other creators that's kind of what the podcast is about but it's not always easy yeah um also keynote here 
people don't always get my sarcasm, but when you reminded you, me, like when you were saying that people take themselves too seriously, anytime like you think that I'm taking myself seri- too seriously, I'm like a hundred percent kidding. <laughs> Just so you yeah. know, <laughs> I'm very sarcastic and people don't always like get it. But like when I refer to this as like a oh, super yeah. popular podcast, I'm, I'm well aware yeah. there's less than a hundred people listening right now. And like, we're towards the end of the video. There's even less than that. Like I'm, I'm not kidding myself. Um, I just, I have to have a little bit of fun with it. Like I can't take this stuff too seriously. Right. So, I mean, um, I post pictures of myself in short shorts and pit vipers on Instagram and you can't take that seriously. Yeah. And I posted a picture of a high point on my story not that long ago. So, <laughs> all right, man, that's enough. I don't want to talk too much about this depressing stuff. Let's, let's move into, um, I, I guess a question, but you know, we already kind of got into it. Like your, you said your name now like more reflects you and that's because you've been working on a, a merchant uh mariner license you want to can you describe what merchant marines or merchant mariner is i don't really have a great understanding and i'm sure every like not everybody listening does absolutely i'm sure once i uh explain um it'll just instantly click it's like oh yeah i know who those people are so merchant mariners are American civilians who operate merchant ships and our flag says in peace and in war. And I think the most famous um, involvement of the merchant marines was in World War II, um, the Liberty ships were crewed by merchant mariners and it was the highest death toll per capita out of every theater, um, you know, Europe, Pacific. The Battle of the Atlantic was especially brutal. Like ships were just going down left and right and submarine warfare is just horrible. And the merchant mariners were the ones who were, um, you know, facing the submarines head on, um, you know, Japanese kamikazes, et cetera. Um, but they're the ones who were supplying everybody with the supplies they needed. Um, and right now I'm going to college for that. I study marine transportation operations, which is the, um, the navigation above deck side of that kind of stuff. And when I graduate, I will have a Coast Guard unlimited tonnage third mate's license. Um, my school remains unnamed. It is a lot of words. Um, it's, it's a lot of stuff too. Um, but yeah, so training to um, one day become the captain of a uh, merchant ship. Um, not quite sure if I want to go cargo or oil or cruise or what be it, but um I really love being able to tie my career to, um, to the Liberty ships um, because it's such an interesting footnote of the war. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I guess, I guess it makes sense now that you explain it, um, like you said. <laughs> and I think a lot of people relate to that, like wanting to like tie themselves to World War II. Like I, I joined the military because I wanted to be tied to the people that were in the military before me. So that makes sense. Right. Um, and in the court, in the courtyard of my school, there's a, um, it's now, yeah, now I'm forgetting the, forgetting the size of it. Um, it's the cannon that would go on the back, on the stern of a Liberty ship. And because during the war, the, uh, the midshipmen at the college that I go to, um, they had a whole naval gunnery class where this gun sat out on the pier and they would shoot blanks and reduce loads into the ocean. <laughs> to practice shelling submarines uh, from the stern of a uh, of a Liberty ship. It's pretty interesting. Yep, definitely not something you see every day. Oh, so uh, 
I want to get in a little bit here. Um, I kind of like run out of time to be honest, but we're going to talk fast about uh, what do you do on Instagram now? We kind of talked about your, your past Instagram, like your past affiliations, who you worked with, what you've done, but what are you currently doing on Instagram? What I'm currently doing on Instagram is um, I take pictures of old guns and old stuff that I have, and I write a very either straight up garbage or witty or either informative. It's one of the three. It, it can't be all of them at once. Uh, caption about whatever it is. It usually it's I'll be at the range or something, and I'll like lean my SMLE or my number four against the side of my truck or something, and I'll be like, oh, that's cool, and I'll take a picture of it. And then I'll, um, you know, write something like, I think a post, I was holding my, my SMLE and I said the SMLE in the sunset and it's like, okay, content, cool. <laughs> and then on my story, on, on my story, um, my story is where a lot of content that I like goes. So that's where I post a lot of other people's content that I enjoy. And I feel like other people should see. Um, but yeah. That's uh, that's pretty much what I do. I don't really have a posting schedule. I kind of just post like when I see an opportunity to take a picture, I'll post it. Um, haven't been to any good museums in a while, but I have a ton of pictures from the uh, National World War One Museum in Kansas City that I was at a few years ago that I still haven't gotten around to posting, but I hope to eventually. Um, but yeah, I used to be real themed and coordinated with my posting, and that just got real tiring. Yeah. And so th then I just started posting, you know, it's like, here's a picture of this and here's a picture of that. And, you know, that kind of stuff. I post what I like. Um, I, I'm not really afraid of what other people have to say about it. Um, That's fair. Uh, I, for anybody still listening, when we come back after this band, our posting is probably going to be a lot less strict than it has been in the past to be honest with you. Um, uh, not being able to post the last couple days has kind of just led me to realize that maybe I shouldn't take um, the schedule so seriously and maybe just post more what I'm currently working on. And we'll see. I'm, I'm reworking things. Um, stay tuned. Uh, let's see. What about future goals on Instagram? What do you, what do you, what's your goal in the short term, the long term, whatever? Um, I mean, I hate to say it, but I'm kind of just on Instagram to have an outlet to, um, to talk about what I like, honestly. Like, I don't really care about the follower count or the likes. I kind of just like an opportunity to show what I have and to talk to other people about what they have. Because um, that's fair. You can't really do that anywhere else right now. Um, right. It's a great place for like-minded people to collaborate and stuff. And I've met a lot of really cool people on here that otherwise I would have met um, if I just kept these thoughts to myself. That's fair. I 100% get that. I've met a lot of great people on Instagram too. Um, a lot of them are going to be on here in the next couple of weeks. I got Old Mauser Man and Black Sheep coming up. I'm really excited to have both those people on here. I met them both on Instagram. I met you on Instagram. I met uh, World War II Junkie on Instagram. So I, I totally get it. Um, I think that's probably the part I enjoy the most too is working with other collectors. And we're getting back to that now with the podcast. And I hope to be able to tie in some more posts eventually with other people. Um, we know when I first got my start, I did a lot of work with other people and we've kind of gotten away 
away from that a little bit just because like it's a lot of work to collaborate with other people and like line up your schedules and stuff but I think it's worth it I think we like produce better stuff on Instagram when we work together so oh yeah yeah um let's see what else so we kind of already mentioned you got a couple Enfields what what's it with the Enfields man like do you (laughs) um I'm gonna try and be as brief with this as possible um I got into history um way way back in the day um back when I was in middle school a long time ago and from there I had a really deep appreciation for military history even though some people would consider it normie if you look really deep into it it, there's some super super elaborate stuff going on and from there it's like you know I've been shooting the occasional like pellet gun in 22 every now and then but these black powder rifles are something that I can get and something that people shoot and these things are really cool and I can almost experience history myself. So I grew up competing all over my home state in various black powder rifle events. Um, And it was a lot of fun. That was kind of my gateway into historic firearms. Um, I started out with one that I built. Um, That was my first competition rifle. I then moved on to a really nice um, reproduction um, pattern 1863 Enfield short musket. That one has moved on because I just didn't want it anymore. Um, It didn't really have as much importance to me as the one that I built, which was my first one. And then from there, I started to get more into more modern history and realized it's like I can actually have a piece of modern history in my hands instead of having a reproduction. And from there, I got into bayonet collecting and then rifle collecting. And then I've always been into British Commonwealth history. That's the long and the short of it. So why why not get a Lee Enfield or two? Fair. Yeah, I mean I've got an MK4 too, so <laughs> I can't talk. They're great too. rifles. Yeah, I love mine. American made Savage Arms. I got the Canadian spike bayonet. Pretty yep. pretty rare, actually. Mm-hmm. Um I managed to accidentally get my Canadian spike bayonet. Um Me too. There's this gun. Yeah. There's a gun store that I that I frequent. Um couple hours away from me that I get my old guns from because they specialize in it um and I was buying my number four there and they're like we have a few bayonets in the back do you want one and I was so excited and I was just like yeah sure and I totally forgot about that there's different markings different types so they just handed me one then a couple weeks later I'm like I wonder what this is so I looked at I'm like oh it's a Canadian one it matches my rifle neat yeah I I got mine accidentally too I bought it with uh, uh the rifle and uh actually it doesn't match the rifle because one the rifle's american two the bayonet's canadian and the bayonet the canadian ones are produced after world war ii so uh, Mm -hmm. it doesn't exactly work but you know it is what it is um so man like i'm gonna wrap things up a little bit here uh it's been a pleasure talking to you um i got a couple couple business things i gotta run through really quick here and then we're gonna get closing closing remarks from you um first of all i gotta i gotta run over my who's coming up next um like i said i got i'm supposed to record with old mauser man tomorrow i think we're gonna kind of break the mold we're not gonna talk about controversial history i know gasp right um but it's gonna be really interesting i've been looking forward to shooting with him for a couple weeks really looking forward to it um I'm supposed to shoot with Black 
Black Sheep on Saturday. I'm not going to be in my studio then, so uh, stay tuned. We're going to figure out how exactly to make that work. And I'm supposed to shoot with surplus and stuff next week. Um, I'm currently still working on getting a couple more people scheduled in here. Um, I'm looking at getting some people I served with in the military on. I think that'd be kind of interesting. Um, one of my friends is a doc. Um, and I got a couple friends who are active duty Marines. And I've got a couple friends who've been moving from one branch to the other branch. And I, I get plenty of people on from the military. I just, I, I got to figure out what direction I want to go. Um, we're still working on that. Obviously, we're still working the kinks out of the podcast. Um, it is what it is. If you made it this far, you're along for the ride, so I don't really care. <laughs> um, one more plug for our what we got going on for sponsoring. Um, basically, this new sponsorship program I've been working out is in direct um, response to my last my last podcast. I kind of announced that I'm I'd really like to have sponsors for these because uh, it's not cheap to be doing all this Instagram stuff and YouTube stuff and Spotify stuff and anchor stuff. Like it's all out of pocket. Um, so like if people want to kick in a buck or two, I really appreciate it. I go, actually it goes a long way. Um, but if you want to kick in a dollar, I'll shout you out. If you want to kick in $5, I'll shout you out and send you a sticker. If you want to shout out, send more money my way. We'll figure some other way to appreciate you. We'll work something out. Um, I'm fair. I promise. Um, I really like the more like sponsorship we get, the more I can put into getting some real merch made like t-shirts because the startup to make t-shirts is going to be like $1,200 or something crazy like that. So um, yeah, I mean, all these things are possible with sponsorships. Um, I'd really like to get um, a sponsorship of a, a real company someday, but we gotta, we gotta work with what we got right now. And unfortunately that's just listeners. I love you guys. I don't mean to like pester you for like donations, but every bit helps and I really appreciate it. Um, that's all I got on sponsoring. If you don't want to send a buck my way, don't worry about it. I still love you. Just keep listening to the podcast and shouting us out on Instagram and liking our posts and sending me direct messages. I love hearing from you people. Comment on these posts, like them, share them with your friends. That's it. Thank you so much. Um, Millsert Mariner, do you have any closing remarks? Yeah, I just want to thank you for having me. This was awesome. Um, I honestly never would have imagined that, you know, through Instagram, I would have been able to do this. Um, it's a fantastic opportunity. Um, and I was glad to be on one of your first podcasts. It was great to have you. I, I always appreciate the kind things people have to say about me because I just think about myself as any other dude on Instagram and that's all I really am. Anybody can find minor success if you find a consistent posting schedule. So that's what I'm going to leave with you guys with today. Tune in next time uh, with old Mauser man. It should be a good one. Not that this one wasn't. We'll see you then.